0: Zero days, more zero days, TikTok, and a sad day for the security community. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the Naked Security Podcast, everybody. I am Doug Amath. With me, as always, is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very, very well. Thank you, Douglas.
0: Well, let's uh let's start off the show with our tech history segment i'm uh, pleased to tell you this week on september 9th 1947 a real life moth was found inside harvard university's mark ii computer and although using the term bug to denote engineering glitches is thought to have been in use for years and years beforehand it is believed that this incident led to the now ubiquitous debug why because once the moth was removed from the mark ii it was taped inside the engineering logbook and labeled the first case of an actual bug being found and I love that story
1: so do I I think the first evidence that I've seen of that term was none other than Thomas Edison I think he used the term bugs but of course being 1947 this was the very early days of digital computing and not all computers ran on valves or tubes yet because they were still very expensive and ran very hot and required a lot of electricity. And this computer, even though it could do trigonometry and stuff, was actually based on relays, electromechanical switches, not pure electronic switches. So quite amazing that even in the late 1940s, relay-based computers were still a thing, although they weren't going to be a thing for very long.
0: Well, Paul, let's stay on the topic of messy things and bugs. A messy thing that is bugging people is the question of this TikTok thing. Is this? There are breaches and there are breaches, and is this actually a breach?
1: As you say, Douglas, this has become a messy thing because it was a huge story over the weekend, wasn't it? Oh, TikTok breach dash. What was it really? Question mark. At first blush, it sounds like wow, two billion data records. Was it one billion users compromised? Hackers have got in. And whatnot. Now, several people who deal with data breaches regularly, notably including Troy Hunt of Have I Been Pwned, have taken sample snapshots of the data that's supposed to have been, air quotes, stolen, and gone looking for it. And the consensus seems to support exactly what TikTok has said namely, this data is public anyway. So what it seems to be is a collection of data, say, a giant list of videos that I guess TikTok probably wouldn't want you just to be able to download for yourself because they'd want you to go through the platform and use their links and see their advertising and so that they could monetize the stuff. But none of the data, none of the stuff in the lists seems to have been confidential or private to the users affected when Troy Hunt went looking and picked some random video, for example, that video would show up under that user's name as public. And the data about the video in the air quotes breach didn't also have, oh, and by the way, here's the customer's TikTok ID, here's their password hash, here's their home address, here's a list of private videos that they haven't published yet, and so on. Okay,
0: so if I'm a TikTok user, is, this a, is there a cautionary tale here? Do I need to do anything? What is, how does this affect me as a user?
1: That's just the thing, Doug. I guess a lot of articles written about this have been desperate to find some kind of conclusion. What can you do? So the burning question that people have been asking is, well, should I change my password? Should I turn on two-factor authentication? All of the usual stuff that you hear. Now, it looks in this case as though there's no specific need to change your password. There's no suggestion that password hashes were stolen and could now be getting cracked by a zillion off-duty Bitcoin miners or anything like that. There's no suggestion that user accounts may be easier to target as a result of this. On the other hand, if you feel like changing your password, you might as well. The general recommendation these days is routinely and regularly and frequently changing your password on a schedule. Like, oh, once a month, change your password just in case is a bad idea because it just gets you into a repetitious habit that doesn't really improve things because we know what people do. They just go, oh, one, oh, two, oh, three at the end of the password. So Mm -hmm. I don't (laughs) think you have to change your password, though if you decide that you're going to do so, good on you. My own opinion is that in this case, whether or not you had two-factor authentication turned on would have made no difference whatsoever. On the other hand, if this is an incident that finally persuades you that 2FA has a place in your life somewhere, then perhaps, Douglas, that is a silver lining.
0: Great, so we'll keep an eye on that, but it sounds like uh, not a whole lot of regular users could have done about this. Uh, Except us- there
1: is maybe one thing that we can learn or at least remind ourselves, from it. I
0: think I know what's coming.
1: Is <laughs> uh, y- it rhyme? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it might do, Douglas. <laughs> Darn, so transparent. Be aware before you share. Once something is public, it really is public. And it's as simple as that.
0: Okay, very good. Be aware before you share. Uh, Moving right along, the security community lost a pioneer in Peter Eckersley, who passed away at 43. He was the co-creator of Let's Encrypt. So tell us a bit about Let's Encrypt and Eckersley's legacy, if you would.
1: Well, he did a whole load of stuff in his, unfortunately, short life, Doug. Uh, We don't often write obituaries on naked security, but this is one of the ones that we felt we had to, because, as you say, Peter Eckersley, amongst all the other things he did, was one of the co-founders of Let's Encrypt. The project that set out to make it cheap, i.e. free, but most importantly, reliable and easy to get HTTPS certificates for your website. And because we use Let's Encrypt certificates on the Naked Security and the Sophos News blog sites, I felt we owe him at least a mention for that good work. Because anyone who's ever run a website will know that if you go back a few years, getting an HTTPS certificate, a a TLS certificate that lets you put the padlock in your visitors' web browsers, not only cost money, which, you know, home users, hobbyists, charities, small businesses, sports clubs couldn't easily afford. It was a real hassle. There was this whole procedure you had to go through and it was very full of jargon and technical stuff. And every year you had to do it again because obviously they expire. It's like a safety check on a car. You've got to go through the exercise, prove that you're still the person who's able to modify the domain that you're claiming to be in control of and so on. And Let's Encrypt not only was able to do that for free, they were able to make it so that the process could be automated on a quarterly basis. So That also means certificates can expire faster in case something goes wrong. And they were able to build up trust quickly enough that the major browsers were soon saying, you know what, we're going to trust Let's Encrypt as a voucher for other people's web certificates, what's called a root CA or certificate authority. Then your browser trusts Let's Encrypt by default. And really, it's all of those things coming together, which to me was the majesty of the project. It wasn't just that it was free. It wasn't just that it was easy. It wasn't just that the browser makers, who are notoriously hard to persuade to trust you in the first place, decided, yeah, we trust them. All of those things put together that made a big difference and helped get HTTPS almost everywhere on the Internet. It's just a way to add that little bit of extra safety to the browsing we do. Not so much for the encryption, as we keep reminding people, but for the fact that, A, you've got a fighting chance that you really have connected to a site that's being manipulated by the person who's supposed to be manipulating it, and also that when the content comes back or when you send a request to it, it can't be tampered with easily along the way. Which, until Let's Encrypt, any HTTP-only website Pretty much anyone on the network path could spy what you were looking at. And worse, they could modify it, either what you were sending or what you were getting back. And you simply could not tell that you were downloading malware instead of the real deal, that you were reading fake news instead of the real story.
0: All right. I think it's fitting to wrap up. We have a great comment here from uh, one of our readers, Samantha, who uh, seems to have known Mr. Eckersley, she says, if there's one thing I'll always remember about my interactions with Pete, it was his dedication to science and the scientific method. Asking questions is the very essence of being a scientist. I'll always cherish Pete and his questions. To me, Pete was a man who valued communication and the free and open exchange of ideas among inquisitive individuals. Well said. Samantha, thank you.
1: Yes, and instead of saying R.I.P., I think I'll say C.I.P., Code in Peace. (laughs)
0: very good alright well we talked last week about a slew of Chrome patches and uh, then one more popped up and this one was an important one
1: it was indeed Doug and because it applied to the Chromium Core it also applied to Microsoft Edge so just last week we were talking about those what was it 24 security holes one was critical eight or nine were high there are all sorts of memory mismanagement bugs in there but none of them were zero days. And so we were talking about that saying, look, this is a a small deal from a zero day point of view, but it's a big deal from a security patch point of view. Get ahead, don't delay, do it today. Sorry, I rhymed again, Doug. This time, it's another update that came out just a couple of days later, both for Chrome and for Edge. This time, there's only one security hole fixed. We don't quite know whether it's an elevation of privilege or a, a remote code execution, But it sounds serious and it is a zero day with a known exploit already in the wild. I guess the great news is that both Google and Microsoft and other browser makers were able to apply this patch and get it out really, really quickly. We're not talking about months or weeks, just a couple of days for a known zero day that obviously was found after the last update had come out, which was only last week. So that's the good news. The bad news is, of course, this is an O day. The crooks are on it. They're using it already. Google has been a little bit coy about how and why. Uh, that suggests that there's some investigation going on in the background that they might not want to jeopardize. So, once again, this is a patch early, patch often situation. You can't just leave this one. If you patched last week, then you do need to do it again. The good news is both Chrome and Edge and most other browsers these days should update themselves. But as always, it pays to check. Because what if you're relying on auto-updating and just this once it didn't work? Wouldn't that be 30 seconds of your time well spent to verify that you do indeed have the latest version? We have all the relevant version numbers and the advice on where to click for Chrome and Edge to make sure that you absolutely do have the latest version of those browsers.
0: And breaking news for anyone keeping score, I just checked my version of Microsoft Edge is the correct up-to-date version, so it updated itself. Okay, and last but certainly not least, we have a rare but urgent Apple update for iOS 12, which we all thought was done and dusted.
1: Yes, as I wrote in the first five words of the article on naked security, well, we didn't expect this. I allowed myself an exclamation point, Doug, uh, because <laughs> I was surprised. My regular listeners to the podcast will know that my beloved, if old, but formerly pristine iPhone 6 Plus suffered a bicycle crash. The bicycle survived. I grew all the skin back that I needed. But my iPhone screen is still in 100,000, million, billion, trillion pieces. All the bits that are going to come out into my finger, I think, have already done so. So I figured iOS 12, it's been a year since I had the last update. Obviously, it's completely off Apple's radar. It's not going to get any other security fixes. I figured, well, the screen can't get smashed again. So it's a great emergency phone to take when I'm on the road. Like if I'm going somewhere, if I need to make a call or look at the map or I'm not going to do email or any work related stuff on it. And lo and behold, it got an update, Doug. <laughs> suddenly, almost a year to the day after the previous one. I think it was 23rd of September 2021 was the last update I had, and suddenly Apple's put out this update. It relates to the previous patches that we spoke about where they did the emergency update for contemporary iPhones and iPads and so all versions of macOS where they were patching a WebKit bug and a kernel bug, both zero days, both being used in the wild. Does that smell of spyware to you? It did to me. The WebKit bug means that you could visit a website or open a document and whoop, it'll take over that app. And then the kernel bug means now you poke your knitting needle right into the operating system and basically punch a hole in Apple's well-vaunted security system. And there wasn't an update for iOS 12. And as we said last time, who knew whether that was because iOS 12 just happened to be invulnerable or that Apple genuinely wasn't going to do anything about it because it fell off the edge of the planet a year ago. Well, it looks like it didn't quite fall off the edge of the planet or it's been teetering on the brink and it was vulnerable. Good news, the kernel bug that we spoke about last time, a thing that would let somebody essentially take over the whole iPhone or iPad, does not apply to iOS 12 but that WebKit bug which remember affects any browser not just Safari and any app that does any kind of web-related rendering even if it's only in its about screen that bug did exist in iOS 12 and obviously Apple felt strongly enough about it so there you are if you've got an older iPhone and it's still on iOS 12 because you can't update it to iOS 15 then You do need to go and get this because this is the WebKit bug we spoke about last time. It has been used in the wild. And the fact that Apple has gone to these lengths to support what seemed to be a beyond end of life operating system version suggests or at least invites you to infer that this has been discovered to have been used in nefarious ways for all sorts of naughty stuff. So maybe only a couple of people got targeted, but even if that's the case, don't let yourself be the third person.
0: And to borrow one of your rhyming phrases, don't delay, do it today.
1: How about that? Doug, I knew you were going to say that.
0: I'm catching on. And as the sun begins to slowly set on our show for today, we would like to hear from one of our readers on the Apple Zero Day Story reader, Brian Comments. Apple's settings icon has always resembled a bicycle sprocket in my mind. As an avid biker and Apple device user, I expect you like that. And that's directed at you, Paul. Do you like that?
1: Do you think it looks like a bike sprocket? I don't mind it because it's very recognizable. I want to go to settings, general software update, hint, hint. That's how you check for updates on iOS. The icon is, it's, it's very distinctive and it's easy to hit and I know where I'm going. But no, I have never associated it with cycling because if that were front chain rings on a geared bicycle, they're just all wrong. They're not connected properly, there's no way to put power into them. There are two sprockets, but they have teeth of different sizes. Like if you think about how gears work on the jumpy gear type bicycle gears, derailers as they're known, you only have one chain. <laughs> And the chain has specific spacing or pitch, as it's called. So all the cogs or sprockets, technically, they're not cogs. Cogs drive cogs. Chains drive sprockets. All the sprockets have to have teeth of the same size or pitch. Otherwise, the chain won't fit. And those teeth are very spiky, Doug. Somebody in the comments said they thought it reminded them of something to do with clockwork, like an escapement or some kind of gearing inside a clock but I'm pretty sure that clockmakers would go, no, 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 we wouldn't shape the teeth like that because they're very distinctive shapes to increase the reliability and precision. So I'm quite happy with that Apple icon, but no, it does not remind me of bicycling. The Android one, ironically, and I thought of you <laughs> when I thought of this, Doug, I thought, oh, uh-huh. God, I'll never hear the end of this if I mention See? it. That does look like a rear cog on a bicycle, and I know it's not a cog, it's a sprocket because cogs drive cogs and change drive sprockets. But for some reason, you call them cogs when they're small at the back of a bicycle, but only has six teeth. The smallest rear bicycle cog I can find mention of is nine teeth, which is very tiny, very tight curve, and only in special usages. BMX guys like them, because the smaller the cog, the less likely it is to hit the ground when you're doing tricks. So that has very little to do with cybersecurity, but uh, it is Fascinating insight into what I believe is known these days not as the user interface but the user experience.
0: All right. Thank you very much Brian for commenting and if you have an interesting story comment or question you'd like to submit we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at Sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you until next time to stay Stay.
1: The cure